Our Father, we thank you that you are faithful. We tend to be up and down. We tend to be inconsistent. Sometimes we, uh, gosh, we get beaten and battered and stuff happens and our emotions swing and our anger gets going and our, we act wrongly and all kinds of stuff. And um, it's, we're human. You are, uh, you are steadfast. Just another word that you're faithful. You're always the same. Your character is the same. You're steady. You're trustworthy. You've never lied to us. You never will. Uh, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, now we're thankful for, for, for this because we are human through and through with, uh, with, with, with great flaws. But we're in this process of following Christ, and it is oftentimes the growth is a little slower than, than we would like. And sometimes we find ourselves, it seems, uh, regressing somewhat. But you're there, and you are steadfast, and you are faithful. And you're abundantly available for us. And we can call on you at any time, and we can have access into your presence at any time through the blood of Christ. In the Old Testament, just one man on one day out of the whole year could go into your presence. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, he opened up access to you. And we can simply call on you, and we have your full and undivided attention. Undivided attention. And you give that to all who call on your name. Now, that's unfathomable to us because we're human, but you're God. We're thankful that you're there. You thank, we're thankful that you sent Christ to save us. We're, we are thankful that you sustain us. We are thankful that you understand us. We are thankful that as we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Encourage us tonight. Help us to fight off fear that may be pressing in on us about uh, something that's imminent or something that's a, a distance off, but it's scaring us and it's worrying us and concerning us and maybe keeping us from sleep. Steady us tonight. Calm us. Remind us of what is true. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. We are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So tonight we're going to tackle the subject of being anchored in God's justice. In God's justice. If there's a mantra for our generation, for our times, it would be the phrase, don't judge me. Don't judge me. But if anyone violates us, or if anyone crosses us, or if anyone hurts us, or if anyone, if anyone in any way infringes upon our rights, we immediately call for justice. That's kind of fascinating because we don't want to be judged, yet when someone takes from us or hurts us or harms us, we want justice. And in order for justice to occur, the perpetrator that harmed us, they must be judged. Yet we say, we all say, don't judge me. Yet judgment is a fact of life, and the world does not exist without judgment. I'd like you to turn with me to Micah in the Old Testament, one of the little minor prophets, not minor in importance, minor in length, as opposed to the big, big guys, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, shorter books, shorter messages, but power-packed. Micah 6.8, when um, our soldiers were going off to war in World War I, President Theodore Roosevelt, we gave every soldier a, a pocket Bible to carry with them. And in the foreword to the troops, President Roosevelt wrote a note all based around Micah 6.8 to our soldiers who were going off to fight World War I. Uh, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So our soldiers, doesn't matter what other, a lot of horrible things happen in battle. And, and wars are terrible things. And one of the reasons there's wars is that somebody, James tells us why there are wars. Uh, you lust and you do not have. Some government leader or some dictator, he wants this land or he wants this nation or whatever. And you know what? Suddenly there's war and there is uh, chaos and there's anarchy. All kinds of horrible things happen. But President Roosevelt wanted our young men to know that we're going to conduct ourselves differently. So he gives them the word of God. Over the last few weeks, we have been talking about good and evil. It's everywhere. It's in the world. Uh, it's in the church. Both good and evil. It's it's in the world. We're always running into it. So we need a perspective on evil, on good and evil. And we're going to look at that tonight. Because you see, those two things, good and evil, are tied in with justice. 
So I've got a, two main points tonight. First main point is this. There will be a final judgment of good and evil. There will be a final judgment of good and evil. Secondly, there is to be a present judgment of good and evil. There is to be a present judgment of good and evil. And, and this affects us every day of our lives. This is very practical stuff. Let's, uh, let's just deal with the first one. Uh, and, and don't forget, the Lord says, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. Talking, I mean, let's apply this to us. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. Now, now see, we're, we're living in a world that only says, don't judge me, but we're living in a world that says that there is no absolute truth. That's what's taught. There is no absolute truth. And they will tell you that, absolutely. But you see, there is absolute truth. There is a God who is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That means absolute moral purity. And he is the standard. Every nation has laws. The closer the laws of a nation are to the word of God, the better off the people will be. If the rulers and judges apply the laws in light of the fear of the Lord. We've got, we've got some good laws. Problem is, we have many in power who have no fear of the Lord God. And they think that this is the only world that there is, and they think that there will be no final judgment. So let's, let's hit the first point. There will be a final judgment of good and evil. Turn with me to Romans 2. Uh, in Romans 2, we find out that, yes, there will be a final judgment. Look at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation in the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey righteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be a final judgment. Um, it's clear in the Word of God. It's, it's clear throughout the Scripture. If you turn to Revelation, 
which is one of the easier books to find. <laughs> yeah, it has its interpretive challenges, but if you look at Revelation 20, verse 11, and I saw a great white throne with him who sat upon it, and from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The way that we escape final judgment is through Jesus Christ. Uh, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He went to the cross as our substitute, and the wrath of God which should have come upon us for our sin was placed on Christ, and Jesus paid it all he satisfied the wrath of God, and therefore when we call upon the name of the Lord and we ask the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior and to forgive us of our sins, and we ask him to come into our, our lives and to be our shepherd and our Lord and our Savior, and we're going to follow him. Now, you know what? We, because of what he has done, and our names have been written in the book of life from before the foundations of the world, he took the judgment for us, but there will be a final judgment. Secondly, there is to be a present judgment of good and evil. There is to be a present judgment of good and evil. There is to be, and see, this is how life works. Everyone says, don't judge me. But that, that, that makes no sense. There is a present judgment of good and evil in the church. There is a present judgment of good and evil in the nation. There is a present judgment of good and evil in families. There is a present judgment of good and evil in commerce, in business. Let's break that down for a minute. Because, you see, the world can exist, cannot exist, if there is not present, ongoing judgment of good and evil, because what will happen is the world will spin into anarchy and chaos. Uh, over the last few weeks, let's talk, first of all, about in the church. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about church discipline, um, not a subject that is, you know, pleasant necessarily to talk about. Uh, until you understand that the whole purpose of church discipline is to restore a brother in Christ who was wandered off the path. Um, the, the, the classic formula for, for church discipline is in Matthew 18. Uh, we've gone over it before. If your brother sins, you go to him in private. Uh, if he listens to you, you want your brother. We're supposed to look out for each other. That's what we're supposed to do. Um, by the way, Galatians 6.1 says, if any among you strays from the truth... No, that's James 5. Go to Galatians uh, 
Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, another brother, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. By the way, the, the idea of restoring is the same word they would use when uh, fishermen would uh, mend their nets. When you mend a net, you're restoring it. Sometimes a brother will get off. Sometimes a brother will get on a, on a uh, trail he shouldn't be on. He's a brother. You have a relationship. Brethren, uh, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, you who are not going down the wrong path at this moment, restore men such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Ah, each one looking to yourself, because you see, you can do the same thing, and you have done the same thing, and you'll probably veer off sometime in the near future. So we look out for each other, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So we restore one another. We look out for one another. Look at the next verse. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So you see, we're in this together. Back in Matthew 18, so you go to your brother. If he listens to you, you and your brother. Great. Now, if he doesn't listen to you, you go get two or three. Because this is serious stuff. Your, your brother can ruin his life. So you get two or three, and you go and talk to him. And, man, this is serious. When two or three friends come and talk to me about something, hopefully he'll listen. If he listens, you've won him. Everything's good. You've restored him. Great. Let's move on. You see? And you've saved him from the bridge that's washed out down the creek, and he doesn't know. Uh, the guy that's getting emotionally involved with a woman, that, that's, and, and, and he's married, and, you know, he, 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 no, nothing's happened. Well, it hasn't happened yet, but you keep getting emotionally involved and spending time one-on-one, -on -one, something's going to happen big time. It's like Proverbs says, uh, you get involved with another woman, you're like an ox going to the slaughter. So when you go to a brother, you're saving him from the slaughterhouse. And you want someone to save you from the slaughterhouse. If he listens to the two or three, great, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen, you tell the church. So that now those in the church, as they seem in the community, they can express their concern, hey, we're praying for you, it'll drive him nuts. Again, not to humiliate him or condemn him, but to save him, to restore him. And then if he refuses to listen to the church, you put him out and treat him as an unbeliever. Unchecked sin in a body uh, is, is like uh, when you know that uh, there's cancer and the surgeon says, oh, don't worry about it. Oh, no big deal. Oh, you got at least six months. Oh, you'll be good. You'll be good. You could be good another year. No, it's dealt with. Sin is cancer. Sin is spiritual cancer. It has to be dealt with. You're trying to save the, the person's life. In fact, look over at James chapter 5. The end of James says this. My brethren, uh, 519, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, ah, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is a godly thing. In other words, uh, uh, godly men are not to be passive. We're not going to be just sitting on the sidelines. We're to be active. We're to be connected. Uh, that's the church. Now, let's talk about 
uh, in the nation. There is to be a present judgment of good and evil in a nation. Flip over to Romans 13, if you would. Romans 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. Think about who was governing when Paul wrote this. Yeah, it wasn't guys with conservative Christian family values. Uh, it, was the, it, it was Nero and some of the other boys that were the exact opposite. Two, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now watch this. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So we want to be good citizens. We're to obey the governing authorities. Now, we do that. But when the governing authorities tell us to disobey the word of God, as they said in Acts, you decide, should we obey you or God? It's like the three boys in the fiery furnace. Oh, king, we don't need to give you an answer. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if he does not, we will not bow down. Now, they, they were good citizens. But the government drew a line which the government had no right drawing. That's the distinction. And when you cross the government and they tell you to obey them rather than God, get ready to take the consequences. You see this. But you see, government bears the sword because there is good and there is evil. The closer a government and the laws of a government are to the word of God and the closer that those in power are to applying the truth of the law, good law, the better off everyone is. Proverbs 28.5 says this, evil men, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. Why? Because their standard is the word of God. They know the God of all holiness. They know the God who is the plumb line. Scripture reveals to us the will of God. Scripture tells us what is good and what is evil. But, 28.5 of Proverbs, evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand all things. Proverbs 29.4, the king gives stability to the land by justice. But a man who takes a bribe overthrows it. Now, fortunately, that doesn't go on in our nation. Isn't it amazing how relevant the Word of God is? You reading anything in the news lately about bribes? Can bribes um, destabilize a nation? Can they threaten a nation? Can they? When all else fails... Read the directions. Most relevant book in the world. So, 
Nations need to be anchored on God's justice. It's always amazing to me when you go to Washington, D.C., and you tour everything in D.C., they got all this scripture chiseled in marble. they got it at the Supreme Court. And that has to drive a lot of those guys crazy. You know that you know they just want to sandblast it away. And I imagine at some point. But you see, that was the foundation. Uh, is it Psalm 11.3? I think it is. Yeah. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We're watching the foundations being destroyed of how we were founded. Well, we just keep following Christ. That's what we do. We just keep entrusting our lives to a faithful creator and doing what is right. Okay. But you got to have present judgment of good and evil, not only in the church, but in the nation. Uh, you got to have it in families. Think about all the scriptures just in Proverbs that talk about the importance of fathers disciplining their children in the home. Just in Proverbs. That's an issue of training children in regard to good and evil. And parents who do not discipline their children are doing them a tremendous disservice, and it will come back on them personally. So it is the job of a father and mother to discipline their children, to teach their children the difference between good and evil. So there, is, there should be judgment in a home concerning good and evil. Th this was understood. It was a given. It was until recent uh, decades. How about business? In business, there is to be a present judgment of good and evil. So I'm flying to California last month, and I, uh, anyway, I pretty much read everything in my backpack. I realized when I got there, and I thought, what I, so I, I go to the newsstand, and I'm looking for something. So I find the Harvard Business Review has been around a long, long time, Harvard Business School, and uh, they, boy, they've been publishing, I don't know how long, 50 years? So they, this is called HBR's 10 Must Reads, and they have different subjects. This one is on managing yourself. And I flipped through it, and I saw an article by Peter Drucker, and that sealed it for me, because whatever Drucker has written, I read. Um, Greatest quote I've ever, uh, that's been in my mind for 35 years from Peter Drucker is this, and I've shared it with my sons, and within the last year, one of them called me and said, Dad, what's that Drucker quote? I said, it's this, when the facts are clear, the decision jumps out at you. That's brilliant. When the facts are clear, the decision jumps out at you. That's just one Drucker quote. But they had this article in here. In fact, it's the title of the book, uh, on managing yourself, and Drucker has an article. But his is the second article. So I get on the plane, and I start reading this thing, and there's an article in here by Clayton Christensen, who is a professor at Harvard Business School. And the article uh, is entitled, the journal article, How Will You Measure uh, Your Life? And I, I really found it uh, interesting. He's taught there a long time. 
He starts out by saying, my class at Harvard Business School, he's speaking about a particular one on management, is structured to help my students understand what good management theory is and how it is built. To that backbone, I attach different models or theories that help students think about the various dimensions of a manager's job and stimulating innovation and growth. Okay, then next paragraph, he says this. On the last day of class, I asked my students to turn those theoretical lenses on themselves to find cogent answers to three questions. First, how can I be sure that I'll be happy in my career? Second, how can I be sure that my relationships with my spouse and my family become an enduring source of happiness? Third, how can I be sure I'll stay out of jail? Now, he's serious. Though the last question sounds lighthearted, it's not. Two of the 32 people in my Rhodes Scholar class spent time in jail. Jeff Skilling of Enron fame was a classmate of mine at HBS. These were good guys, but something in their lives sent them off in the wrong direction. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about good and evil. I thought, this is interesting. Uh, you flip the page, and he's got a subheading, create a strategy for your life. He's got these nuggets, you know. He says, it's, and, and, and this is one of the things he tells them. You've you got to create a strategy for your life. They're in Harvard Business School. They're smart. They're young. Their plan is to make a lot of money, do very well, da, 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 da. He writes this. It's quite startling that a significant fraction of the 900 students that Harvard Business School draws each year from the world's best have given little thought to the purpose of their lives. I told the students that Harvard Business School might be one of their last chances to reflect, to reflect deeply on that question. What's the purpose of my life? If they think they'll have more time and energy to reflect later, they're nuts because life only gets more demanding. You take on a mortgage, you're working 70 hours a week, you have a spouse, and you have kids. This is where the guy really got my attention. When I was a Rhodes Scholar, I was in a very demanding academic program trying to cram an extra year's worth of work into my time at Oxford. I decided to spend an hour every night reading, thinking, and praying about why God put me on this earth. What is this I'm reading? I didn't expect that. That was a very challenging commitment to keep because every hour I spent doing that, I wasn't studying applied econometrics. I never heard that word before in my life. I was conflicted about whether I could really afford to take that time away from my studies, but I stuck with it and ultimately figured out the purpose of my life by seeking the Lord and praying for an hour every night. I figured out the purpose of my life. Had I spent Instead, that hour each day learning the latest techniques for mastering the problems of autocorrelation and regression analysis, which I was thinking of this morning. <laughs> I would have badly misspent my life. I apply the tools of econometrics a few times a year, but I apply my knowledge of the purpose of my life every day. It's the single most useful thing I've ever learned. 
My purpose grew out of my religious faith. Then he goes on. I'm liking this guy. I'm thinking, I can't believe this. Uh, then he's got a subheading, you know, I'm not giving you much context. Avoid the marginal cost mistake. What's this all about? This theory addresses the third question that I discuss with my students, how to live a life of integrity or stay out of jail. Unconsciously, we often employ the marginal cost doctrine in our personal lives when we choose between right and wrong. A voice in our head says, look, I know that as a general rule, most people shouldn't do this. But in this particular extenuating circumstance, just this once, it's okay. He tells a story about when he was at Oxford, he played in a basketball team, and they got to the equivalent of the Final Four in the United States. Championship game was being played on Sunday. He had a personal faith conviction that he should not play on Sundays. His coach thought he was nuts. His teammates thought he was nuts. And the pressure that was brought to bear on him, that's wonderful, that's a wonderful personal commitment. Can't you break it just once because of the extenuating circumstances? And he refused to do it. He says, looking back on that situation, resisting the temptation whose logic was, in this extenuating circumstance, just this once, it's okay, has proven to be one of the most important decisions of my life. Why? My life has been one unending stream of extenuating circumstances. Had I crossed that line that one time, I would have done it over and over in the years that followed. The lesson that I learned from this is that it's easier to hold on to your principles 100% of the time than it is to hold on to them 98% of the time. Now, what's he teaching here? He's teaching the difference between good and what? Evil. Because, you see, this comes up in business all the time. It comes up every day in business. I take trips. I do different things. And I take it in, and my bookkeeper, who's been with me for years and years, she'll call me and she says, Steve, what about this? Is that ministry or is that personal? And sometimes it's blended. And I've kind of just set a, a default position. If it's not clear, I say, it's personal, I'll pay it. It's the safest way. Is it not? Oh, man, I don't want to come up with that 315 bucks for that. Yeah, I do. It's safe. And if I'm not sure, let me err on the side of safety and wisdom. And you get it. That's what this guy's saying. So, see, this works in business. Looking at that clock. It, it works in all of life. So over the last couple of weeks, it's been, we, we've gotten a little bit heavy in here. Um, we've talked about good and evil, and we've talked about situations 
where uh, in, in the body of Christ, evil occurs. There are false teachers. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, we did miracles in your name. We cast out demons. We did works of power. And I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. He never knew. They're deceivers. They're counterfeits. So there's evil in the church, and we've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks, and, you know, uh, what Scripture says about dealing with that in the church. Most of the examples that I used in our discussion on, uh, over the last couple of weeks in regard to good and evil were mostly about sexual immorality. But not all good and evil is sexual. Is it? Proverbs says, guard your heart, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. You got to watch our heart on every issue. I love what he said. There are always extenuating circumstances. Yeah. God judges good and evil and he judges it in the church. Let me give you some examples in Scripture of other issues that God judges besides sexual immorality among those who bear his name. Now, oh, by the way, can it be forgiven if, it's, if, if there's genuine repentance? Absolutely. That's the gospel. But you see, what we were looking at last week and especially were those who refused to repent and turn from their sin and turn to Christ. If you don't repent and turn from it and turn to him, you're cutting off forgiveness, you see. Now, if, if you're a believer, a true, genuine believer, and you're resisting the Spirit of God, you will be disciplined and the and the more stubborn you are and the longer you fight, the more stringent the discipline will be. That's Hebrews chapter 12. God disciplines those whom he loves. My father believed in that passage. I think it was his life verse. <laughs> and my dad saved me from some situations that could have ruined my life because I knew that somehow he would find out and he would discipline me severely. Justly, but severely. I thank God for that. But there are other things besides immorality where good and evil occurs. Um, Acts 5. Again, I got to look at that clock. In Acts 5, you have a situation. Uh, Acts 5 follows Acts 4. Now, there's a profound insight of Bible study for you, and I know you're thrilled you came tonight just to hear that. In Acts 4, uh, 
there was persecution going on, and the church was helping one another out. And uh, a man named Barnabas, right at the end of verse uh, uh, chapter 4, what he did, he owned a track of land, he sold it, and he brought all the money and gave it to the apostles to help out with any need in the church. Okay? Wonderful thing. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. See, what he wanted, they wanted the recognition that Barnabas got. They wanted to be esteemed as Barnabas was for the gift that he gave. But they really didn't want to do it. So he and his wife get together and they talk. And uh, yeah, we'll say we're doing the whole thing, but we're, no, but we're going to put, you know, we're not. You get it. He walks in. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back, to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. Every once in a while, I'll hear some preacher on TV, some Pentecostal or prosperity preacher or charismatic guy, and he's preaching in Acts, and he says, you know the church, what the church needs? We need to return to the book of Acts. Really? I know what he's talking about. He's talking about all the miracles. But you can't pick and choose what you want out of Acts. You got this. And if this was true, if God was doing this across the board like he did in the book of Acts, I wouldn't be here tonight. And neither would you. And there'd be no reason to have this building. You see? But you see, the patience of God is incredible. But sometimes, God is swift. Oh, that's not the end of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. You got to go to the next verse. So they, uh, the young men got up and covered him up. After carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And there was no internet, there was no social media, there was nothing. So his wife had no idea what happened. That's not in the text, I just, I, I threw it in there, trying to be relevant here. There elapsed an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. She said, yes, that was the price. Peter said to her, why is it you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold the feet of those who have buried your husband at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Because God had, had moved swiftly in judging good and evil. You know what, you know what, what we, we talked about church discipline and when it's invoked and, and people, oh no, we don't want it. But, but you know what's very interesting about church discipline? It puts fear in the church. I was um, years ago involved in a situation where this had to be done, Matthew 18. 
And it was interesting. I specifically remember a gentleman coming up to me that next week and saying, I need to come clean on something. And it was wonderful that he did, and he was repentant. And he got straightened out and got back following Christ. Okay. Um, you would also have, um, in Acts 12, 21, you have Herod the king. Uh, again, we're talking about there is to be a present judgment of good and evil. In Acts 12, you have Herod and basically um, 21, on the appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took a seat on the rostrum, began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. What a way to go. Eaten by worms. Couldn't live with the own stench coming out of his intestines. He refused to give glory to God. Now, this guy had a long history of not giving glory to God. And he, and he was in a family that did not give glory to God. They were the ruling class. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Now, you, you know, aren't you thankful for the mercy of God and the fact that he is so long-suffering? I am, my gosh. Uh, you have instructions about the Lord's Supper beginning in 11.23. And then in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. They, they had, they would actually have a, a feast, a meal, um, and they didn't do grape juice. They did wine. The water was no good. So they had wine with alcohol. It's what everybody drank. I mean, it wasn't Jim Beam, but it had some alcohol in it. It, uh, it made sense. What was happening is there were people showing up at the Lord's table, and instead of honoring the Lord and remembering what he had done, they were... They were Chowing down and vomiting and throwing up and are throwing back the booze and they're getting drunk and they are blaspheming the Lord's table. 28, but a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Some of them were sick. Some of them were weak. Some of them were sick. Some of you have slept. That means died. I'll guarantee you that put fear in the church. Uh, why? Because God makes a distinction between good and evil, and he wants us to make that same distinction. I want to make a statement here by way of application. 
Why, why am I going into all this? Again, last week, we, uh, it was heavy, and we dealt with when, when there is evil in the church and steps that are taken to deal with evil. But it is true that there are, uh, there are other issues that come up that are outside of the church that come into your life. Let me, let me back up and put this another way. I've said this before. Every man has a sphere of influence. Every guy in this room. You have a literal geographical sphere, if you will. You could map it out. If you took a map or Google Maps or whatever you use, you could, you could map out where you live most of your life. Most of the miles on your car is lived within a, you're in a certain range. You live somewhere, you go to work somewhere, you're in a church, um, you shop somewhere, you know, your grandkids, your kids, whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? You got a sphere. And in that sphere, geographically, are people. You got your family. You got your friends, you got your loved ones, you got, uh, you got people. Now, depending on who you are and what your responsibilities are and your position of responsibility, you have people as a man, if you're, certainly if you're a husband, father, you have a family and the children are under your care. Um, you, uh, if you're an uh, employer, you have people that are under your care. Um, you have, um, you got extended family in your sphere of influence. I wrote this down and I want to read it so I get it right. We all have our areas of responsibility. It is the responsibility of God-fearing men to represent God's justice and apply it righteously within their sphere of influence. Let me say that again. It is the responsibility of God-fearing men to represent God's justice and apply it righteously within their sphere of influence. I'm going to show this to you in just a minute. I want to go back to this Harvard thing. That second article was written by Peter Drucker. The guy was all-time. Managing, uh, managing, managing oneself. Um, and he talks about the importance, you got to manage yourself, and he breaks it down. You know, you got to figure out as you go through life, what are my strengths? You got to figure out how do I perform? You got to figure out, am I a reader or a listener? And he explains that because some people learn best by reading, but others learn best through the ear. You see, you got to figure that out. And that, that, that really explains whether or not you did well in school, depending on how you're wired. There's no right or wrong to it. It's just how God wired you. So when you can figure it out, you get this. Uh, how do I learn? Uh, what are my values? This is all about managing yourself. Where do I belong? What's my slot? What's my best slot? Should I be the lead guy or should I be a number two guy? He talks about George Patton. Uh, 
Patton got upset because he wasn't given a command. But George Marshall, who Drucker says was a brilliant, had a brilliant ability to understand men and their giftedness, Patton would do best as a general in the field, not the top guy. Patton wasn't the guy to set strategy for the whole thing. He was the guy to, as Bob Beale says, he's the guy, take that hill, take that city. He'll take it. But you don't want him doing strategy. Okay. Here's the one I circled. When you manage yourself, you take responsibility for your relationships. Bingo. It's a biblical principle. All right, I'm looking at that clock. So, what I just said was, it's the responsibility of God-fearing men to represent God's justice and apply it righteously within their sphere of influence. This is what it means to be a God-fearing man. Turn with me to Job 29, if you would. Job 29. You're in Psalms, go left. You'll find it. Here's the deal on Job. You know the story of Job. He was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. He walked with God. He was incredibly wealthy. God had prospered him. He had a wonderful family. I mean, this guy just was blessed by God. And Satan comes to the Lord and said, listen, the reason this guy loves you is because you've just poured out blessing on him. If you, and, and that's why he loves you. But if he was afflicted, if you let me work on him, you're going to find out he really doesn't love you. The Lord says, fine. And he puts boundaries on Satan. God always puts boundaries on Satan. Satan cannot do whatever he wants. Uh, as Martin Luther said, he's, uh, he's a pit bull on a chain. There is a chain. He can go no further than that chain. God says, fine, you can afflict him. And so Job gets nailed. And then in chapter 2, after these four terrible things happen, now he's got boils from head to toe. And then his friends show up, and they're, you know, reading him all this super spiritual stuff, and just tor the guy's in torment, and they're driving him. Anyway, okay. But in Job 29, he looks back over his life before he was afflicted and how God used him. Uh, if you look at Job 29, you got to really, I want to begin with the last verse. He speaks of his position in the community. I chose a way for them and set as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops as one who comforted the mourners. He was a respected man. He was a man of influence. He was a man, uh, he was a man of God. Now, I want to go through Job 29 really fast and just make a couple comments. You're, you're going to see he had a sphere of influence, and you're going to see how he used it. Okay. Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me. When his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Uh, as I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, my children were around me, and when my steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. I mean, when it, things were great. Now they're not so great. He's looking back. 
Verse 7, when I went out to the gate of the city, and by the way, the gate of the city is where everything happened in the city. Uh, the courts were at the gates. The financial affairs were at the gates. All the affairs of the city were handled at the gates. All of them. Okay? When I went to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves, and the old men arose and stood out of respect. The princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths out of respect. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to their palate. For when the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it gave witness of me. In other words, they saw something in Job they didn't see in anyone else because he was a man who walked with God and he had God's wisdom. And he was able to dispense God's wisdom and God's justice in appropriate ways, not unlike Solomon. So Solomon was the ultimate. Christ is the ultimate, then Solomon. Job would be right next to Solomon in what he did. Okay. 12, and now he's going to state it, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. Who was the one to assist? They were in his sphere of influence. Who was the one to come and assist? Job. The blessing of the... He, he was ready to, to give justice, to give mercy, to give kindness. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. So the husband dies, the widow is destitute, Job comes along, you'll be taken care of. Made her heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. His justice, which was the justice of God. He's not boasting. He's just saying God used him. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. He didn't use his wealth for his own pleasure and dollar. He, he, this guy's involved. He is connected. He's in relationship. Can you do this for everyone in the world? No, but there are those in your sphere. I was a father to the needy, 16. I invested, watch this. I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. He took on wicked men, and he dealt with them. Hmm. That's where the rubber meets the road. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days of sin. In other words, he thought, uh, these days of prosperity and being used by God are going to continue and continue. Uh, go down to 21. To me, they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. He was speaking the counsel of God. After my words, they did not speak again. My speech dropped on them. They waited for me as for the rain and opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they did not believe. and the light of my face, they did not cast down. I chose a way for them and sat as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops as one who comforted the mourners. That's a God-fearing man. That's what we should ask Christ to enable us to become. So, 
So let me back up. So again, last week, we're talking about some evil situations. You've got to confront evil according to Scripture, what it says. But sometimes it's not so cut and dried. It's not necessarily in the church. If it's in the church, we have directions on how to handle evil in the church. Sometimes it's um, outside the church. Sometimes it's in a family and an extended family. And some are Christians and some are non-Christians. But there's a situation, and it cannot be ignored, and it has to be handled because there are those who are being uh, hurt. There are those who are being taken advantage of. And someone needs to do the right thing. But it's not clear as to what, I mean, there's, there's, you can't go to a particular passage on your particular issue. You guys follow me here? So what do you do? Remember that quote by Drucker? When the facts are clear, the decision jumps out at you. What do you do when the facts aren't clear from Scripture as to how to handle something? Let me give you three principles. Three verses, actually. Uh, the first verse is sort of an overarching one. This should be our goal in our sphere of influence where God has placed us. It would be Romans 12, 18, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. You know, if, when you go back and look at Job 29, in every one of these situations, he was bringing peace where there was no peace. He was bringing peace to the widow. He was bringing peace to the orphan, to the needy. Uh, whoever it was he snatched out of the jaws of the wicked, he brought peace. He kept to the blind, to the lame. He kept bringing peace because he was bringing God's justice. And he was taking on evil and doing good. So I need to say this. Once again, we know in church discipline, the goal is restoration. Um, sometimes in situations that are in the church, sometimes situations that are outside of the church, and it falls upon you to do the right thing and confront evil or wrong, that's hard. But ultimately, the goal is to have peace. So I'm going to give you a couple illustrations here. Um, a number of years ago, I had a situation, extended, extended family. Um, some family members come to me and there was a situation with someone they're very near to. I, I'm obviously trying to camouflage this. And they asked me to approach the person who was a believer. Um, I prayed about it, and I did. It didn't go well. But I felt like what I had to say, well, I felt like I had to say 
what had been conveyed to me, and I said it as, as gently and as kindly as I, as I could say it. I knew the response I would get, and I got it. And it was there for quite a while. It was there for years. And then something interesting, really, I mean, very interesting, that person began to move in the direction of righteousness. And where there was some fracture in relationships, they began to be healed, and they're incredibly solid today. It took some years. And during that whole time, uh, that person never asked me to sign their yearbook. You know what I mean? I, I, they, I wasn't popular with them. But then, as years went by, I got a call from one of the parties and said, it might be good if you made another call. And I did. And in 15 minutes, we got it all worked out, and there's peace. I thank God for that. It's not fun to go through that stuff. I had another one where there was a, a difficulty between another believer and a lot of dialogue and a split. You know, Paul split with Barnabas over Mark. Years later, Paul was working with Mark. This was one of those deals. Our, we had some friends who were close to the situation were trying to get us to iron it out, but there was no way to iron it out because we'd spent so much time talking. It wasn't going to get ironed out. And so there was a point we just quit trying. This guy's a good guy, loves the Lord. And here's what was in my heart. I knew we'd get it worked out, and I think he knew it. We just both knew it was too fresh, and it would take time. And about 10 years later, it got worked out, and there's peace. As much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men, first principle. Now, secondly, let's get specific. Yeah, but I got a situation, Steve, and there's this in our family, or there's this at work, and I'm not, I don't see anything in Scripture, and I'm not, I, see, I, the thing is, I know it's wrong, but I'm not sure how to proceed. All right, here's your verse. Proverbs 11:14. in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. If you're not sure what to do, go to two or three others that you trust their walk with Christ and their maturity in the Scriptures. They are individuals of wisdom. If you're not sure what to do, ask them for their counsel. And you know what's astonishing? This has happened to me many times in my life. It, it's happened to me in the last month, where from three different people that I asked, I got the exact same counsel. I know I'm safe. When I hear, in a very short amount of time, the same thing from two or three people who are walking with Christ, I kind of consider it from the Lord. The last time was yesterday. And my friend, who I've known for years and years and years, said, you know, Steve, I'd back off and wait. I said, yeah, 
Because you see, that's what the other two had said. So I'm just backing off and waiting. And you know what? I've got a peace. Because in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. Let me give you a, a third principle. Third principle is this. When you're not sure what to do, here's the third principle, third scripture. Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise. He who walks with wise men will be wise. And you're saying, isn't that basically the same principle that you just gave us? Well, almost. But you see, in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. He who walks with wise men will be wise. But see, here's the deal. When wise men give you counsel, do it. Do it. I was recently in a situation where counsel was sought. The counsel was contrary to what the individual wanted. And it didn't go well. Because you see, it was false. And this was in a ministry. They weren't looking for godly counsel. They were looking for a rubber stamp on what they wanted to do. And everyone around them who knows the situation and is walking with the Lord is saying, that's wrong. And they're plowing ahead. They're asking for it. We get in these places, and we're not quite sure, how do I handle this? How do I handle this? Those are three verses. I'll give you one more that just popped into my head. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And in my New American Standard Bible, they have an alternative rough-hewn translation in the margin, and it reads like this, God is our refuge and strength. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. He's not just available. He is abundantly available. I need the wisdom of God in this situation. Ask God for wisdom, then talk to wise counselors, and then follow the counsel. And God will use that to navigate you through the tight place. And you can go ahead and move with confidence, trusting in the Lord. This makes sense? I think that's how we can be used. If we're willing to make ourselves instruments of the Lord and be available. So, Father, we bring ourselves to you. These are, um, uh, li this is life. But when, whenever we're not sure, we come to you. Thank you that you don't leave us by ourselves. Thank you that you don't leave us confused. You said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But don't be as the horse or mule whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in place. When you tell us your counsel, we should not fight you like a horse fights sometimes. Give us teachable hearts, willing spirits to be used as Job was used. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.